my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. Dustin Hoffman himself once said to me, he said, Alec, we're all in line when it comes to getting our hands on a good script. He said, we're all in line, Alec. He said, some of us are just in a shorter line. <laughs> Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to this episode of Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Today, we have a guest who embodies the magic, creativity. He's covered the spectrum of acting, theater, TV, movies, in both the commercial and critically acclaimed. And he's had huge successes in comedy and drama. He's an active participant in the world. And he was very early with his own podcast. He did podcasts before podcasting was cool. He's Alec Baldwin. Alec grew up on the south shore of Long Island under the shadow of Manhattan. He had early aspirations to be a lawyer. But as he switched to acting, he paid the dues with all kinds of jobs from waiting tables to being a lifeguard, and he was even a busboy at the legendary Studio 54. He's hosted Saturday Night Live more than anyone else and swept every award possible with his role on 30 Rock. There is so much to explore today. Welcome, Alec. Thank you, Bob. Good to talk to you. It's great to talk to you, and here we are on the magic of audio. 
Before we dig in today, I want to get you in 60 seconds. You ready to go? Yes, sir. Do you prefer early morning or late night? Late night. New York City or Long Island? Long Island. New York or California? New York. Instagram or Twitter? <laughs> Instagram. Film or TV? Film. George Washington University or New York University? NYU. Jack Ryan or Jack Donaghy? Jack Donaghy. Uh, Tennessee Williams or Eugene O'Neill? Tennessee Williams. Classical or classic rock? Classical. Sweet or salty? Uh, salty. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Coffee is for closers or ABC always be closing? Always be closing. ABC always be closing. It's about to get harder. Smartest person you know? Bob Pittman, the head of iHeartRadio. <laughs> Childhood hero? Joe Namath. Favorite play you've acted in? Streetcar Named Desire. Political hero? John F. Kennedy. First job? I cut grass. I was a, I was a lawn jockey with a landscape company. Favorite director? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Scorsese. Favorite composer? Mahler, Gustav Mahler. Favorite sport? Football. Favorite movie theater snack? The popcorn with the raisinets in the popcorn. <laughs> Guilty pleasure. Sleeping in. I got remarried and I have five little kids, so sleeping in, that's a guilty pleasure around here, believe me. <laughs> What's something you can't live without? My wife. And what would you be doing if you weren't an actor? I'd probably be a lawyer, I think. That's where I was headed before I went to acting school. Okay, let's get going. Let's jump in. Creative range. I want to start with that. You know, what sort of sets you apart from people is, is that incredible range you have. How did you get that range and the opportunity to use it? Well, I think a lot of people have this in common, which is it's not like it's a plan you set out to execute. You know, you, you, you have a plan and it doesn't always go according to the plan. So you wind up being faced with the choices you have. And for me, those choices were often very disparate choices. And then when 30 Rock came around, that was the chance to jump in with some people who I was very intimidated by them. You know, it's one thing to say funny lines. It's another thing to write it. And Tina and Robert Carlock and all those people, they were, you know, I, I got into that show and just tried to fit in and watch them and try to, you know, serve the material as best I could. But I found that everywhere I go, the the rule is always, if the choice is A, B, or C, and I walk around going A, B, or C, what's it going to be? A, B, or C? And the answer more often than not is D. It's something completely not on the map. And I've wound up going off and doing, you know, plays and TV shows and movies and things that I never imagined I would do. I've talked to a lot of people, and there's sort of this idea that, that great ideas and opportunities sort of hit you on the head like a meteor. The best ideas or the best opportunities were totally unforeseen, unexpected, and it sounds like that's, that's worked for you as well. Well, you know, Lorne Michaels came to me to do 30 Rock, and this is the best example. And I thought, oh, God, I don't want to do a sitcom. I don't want to be, I don't want to be a regular on a sitcom. But when Lorne said, did you want to sign a contract? And I did the pilot. And by the time we were done doing the pilot, I said to myself, this is fun. I mean, it's, it, was a, it was a lot of fun to do the show. Like when you do a drama, when you do a film, you're there focused and it's very intense and you're thinking, how can we get the most out of this day? How can we get the most out of shooting these scenes today? Because we're not going to come back. 
you know, presumably. We're, we're, we rarely come back. And shooting a comedy was, I mean, I cried laughing every day. They were the funniest people I've ever met in my life. When you started out, did you think you were going to one place? And if so, what was that place? Was it comedy, drama? I think most people who start out as actors, you look at a career, I think the most gleaming example is Nicholson, where you do all these disparate roles and you play these very different roles and you do all these films where you have a great part. I mean, who, other than maybe Spencer Tracy or Bogart, has had as many great films and his acting is what made them great. And Nicholson kind of stands alone, you know, in the modern world. Pacino, De Niro, Warren Beatty, Newman, Redford, all that crowd, Dustin Hoffman. But Nicholson has played so many disparate roles. Hoffman, too. I mean, very ranging, you know, Ratso Rizzo and Kramer versus Kramer and Lenny Bruce and everything. And that's, I think, what people want is to play a lot of different roles and different types of people and create different characters. And uh, that's difficult to access that material. You know, the, the, the search, the hunt for good scripts is something that plagues everybody. Dustin Hoffman himself once said to me, it was very funny. He said, he once said to me years ago, he said, Alec, we're all in line when it comes to getting our hands on a good script. He said, we're all in line, Alec. He said, some of us are just in a shorter line. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you've done theater too. And which one, theater, movies, TV, what do you find the most rewarding, most challenging and the most uh, fulfilling for you? Well, with a film, there's an opportunity that if the film succeeds, and that I don't mean necessarily commercially or critically, it can be either one or both. You know, when I go do a blatantly commercial project like Mission Impossible, I've gone and done a couple of those. And you realize, you know, this is the apex. This is the pinnacle of big ticket studio movie making. And these guys just, you know, they just tear it up, you know, and no one works harder than Tom. He's just the most hardworking guy. And you're thrilled to be in their company and make that kind of movie. Then you turn around and you go make another movie. And the, the entire budget for that movie is the budget for ice on Tom's movie. You know what I mean? It's like you do the giant film with a big budget and then you go do a film like really, really tiny, but you're still in there really trying to hone it and get, and if the film works, you know, if you do a little film and it gets some traction and people think it's worthy, the content that's thrilling. The theater is a place you go where there's risk, but just less risk. You know, if you go do a revival of uh, Tennessee Williams, you sit there and say, well, we know the material works, you know? Right. It's not like a movie where if the movie flops, that's painful and there's a lot of money at stake. But in the theater, it's much more like music. You know, all of us are like a band. We're there together to serve this piece and we're there to support this piece, the writing. And you want to meet the challenge. Like when I did Streetcar, we were like, oh my God, this is like, we're never going to have an opportunity like this in our lives again. This is it. We're going to be doing this play and no one's going to do it again for seven or eight or 10 years or more. And that's thrilling. It's such an honor whenever I do a play. I'm not going to say I like plays better, but the play experience can be sometimes be a, a more pure experience in terms of acting. By the way, I saw you at that and it was a powerful performance. And one of those things that uh, has stayed with me all these years. So 
And if you were enjoying it half as much Thank as you. I was, it was, uh, it was pretty powerful. Let's go back in time some for some context on you. You were born in the late 50s, grew up in the 60s and 70s in sort of middle-class Long Island. Tell me about those times and that place. Can you paint the picture for everybody? My childhood was very modest. You know, my dad was a teacher. He had six kids. He had no money. Everything in his life was about not having enough money. And he would just, all him and my mother did was complain about, you know, so when I walked out the door and I was a kid, I remember kind of sitting there and saying, whatever you do, don't end up like your dad. <laughs> I just thought I have to make a living. And it almost didn't matter. There was a part of me that thought I'll sell insurance. I mean, I just don't want to be stressed out like my poor dad because my dad was a great guy and he was just stressed. He died young. He was only 55 when he died. But at the same time, I'm not going to deny the fact that in many ways I was as happy or happier then than I am now, you know, because it was so simple. You know, we go out the door and throw snowballs at each other and make a snowman and go sledding. And we go play baseball in the summer. We play football in the fall. We go to the pool at the local park. We, and of course, as you can appreciate, it wasn't the days of the helicopter parent. Right. You know, I get on a bicycle. I get on a Schwinn Stingray bicycle and ride into the bowels of my neighborhood in South Shore, Massapequa, Long Island, my parents wouldn't see me for four or five hours. They had no idea where I was. Nor were they, they looking they for did. you if they yeah. were like my parents. Right. They had no idea. They, they took my word for it. You know, I was gone all day. I mean, not that I was uh, running a, a still somewhere <laughs> making moonshine. I wasn't counterfeiting money. I wasn't doing anything illegal. But when we would take off, there were no cell phones and FaceTime. And, you know, you came home and... You came home at the requested hour, or my father would be very grim. But in a lot of ways, I mean, life, listen, you are a media mogul. You know, you're a guy who has been on top of this business for so long now, it doesn't even seem real. You know, going back to MTV and on through AOL and your whole thing. And you've seen the changes in all of its technology. I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion of that. It's technology. Well, you know, we also had TV back then was sort of a forced common experience that we could go to school the next day and everybody was talking about the same show. They had seen the same thing. And by the way, we only had one TV in the house. We had the family TV. So my You're family, from Brookhaven, Mississippi, even smaller. And we would uh, we'd all watch TV together. And it became a sort of a force to bring things together. And uh, I think, you know, you're exactly the right. the fireplace. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it's good or bad, but it's certainly different today. And we don't have any unifying experience. We don't have anything driving homogeneity, which, you know, we saw the awful side of often. But we also, there was a good side to it, which was it did sort of bring people together as one civilization. And I do think we, we missed some of that. I think an interesting thing is in terms of the news, you know, the news was something that you had an appointment with that TV set. My dad would come home from work and he would lie on a couch and he would read the New York Times. My father taught economics and American government in a public high school and he was very politically engaged and he would come home and it would be John Chancellor or Huntley Brinkley or Cronkite, then rather, you sat down in front of the TV, Nancy Dickerson. I mean, I remember all these names, Robert Trout. You watched all these old time veterans uh, of the news 
and, and the news came and you devoured it because there was no 24-hour news cycle. Nobody had a phone in their hand where there were alerts on your phone. There was a morning newspaper and an evening newspaper, and there was radio and the TV at the specified times. And then the news went away. Right. And your relationship with the world went away. Yeah, but you're exactly right. So let's go on to that period. What values do you think you have today that came out of that experience and those times? You know, I got remarried. My wife and I are together now. Uh, yesterday was the 10-year anniversary of when I met my wife. I met my wife February 18th, 2011. Congratulations. we together for 10 years. Thank you. And we had five kids in seven years. I got a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a five-month-old. We have a lot of kids here. And uh, the joke is people will come over and they'll sit down and we'll say, be careful, there might be a baby under that cushion there. You never know in this house. There's babies everywhere. And um, what it's done for me at my age, because I'm about to turn 63 years old, is it's made me go back into my own childhood and realize that this is a gift I've been given and that my family and my kids are really all that matters to me. And the COVID, even though the COVID has been so debilitating, it has inhibited the way we normally interact in terms of acting. But other than that, uh, the effects of the COVID, I look at this time and I think I'll never have this time again. I'll never have this time again where I'm home with my kids every day. They don't go to school. They rely on their mother and I to help them negotiate the kind of peculiarity of this time in our life. And all they want is to be together. That's all they want is your attention and you to listen to whatever they say about school. And my daughter will turn to me and say, did you realize that Saturn is not the only planet that has rings on it? And I'll go, no, I didn't know that. And she's lecturing me about the solar system and she's seven years old and that's it. I mean, this time, this it's almost like a little house on the prairie. I mean, something very simple and pure with them is really the only thing I care about anymore in my life, truly. Oh, that's a, that's a beautiful story. We'll be right back with more Math & Magic after this quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. 
OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go, like, how do I detach from my this idea of, what do, is, that, is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know, oh, okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. Let's hear more from my conversation with Alec Baldwin. Let me jump a little bit. Let's go to your conversion. It's, you had something sort of like Paul's uh, conversion on the road to Damascus when you went from this George Washington University guy studying political science, expecting to be a lawyer. You had had, uh, I think, interned in your congressman's office. You had interned in a law firm to suddenly you decide you're going to be an actor and you go to NYU and you have these jobs that you would think beginning actors have. You're a waiter. You're a chaperone on a tour bus company. You're a lifeguard. You're a busboy at Studio 54. I was, yeah. Where did that conversion come from? Well, <laughs> that's funny. I'm at GW and I loved it there. And GW back in 1976 was beginning to mold itself into what it is now. And it was a different Washington, a more sleepy Washington. We're always reminded of Kennedy's admonition that Washington was the city of Northern hospitality and Southern efficiency. And that was surely <laughs> true when I was there. I worked in as, as an intern on Capitol Hill and a guy there, he was an attorney. And I said, now you're on the staff of this congressman and I'm sure it's not paying you a lot of money. He said, no, it's not. I said, what gives with that? He said, well, everyone's getting a law degree now. 
just to have it as another arrow in their quiver. And uh, he said, it's really tough. The competition's tough to get in. The competition's really tough to get a job when you get out. He said, I'm on the staff as a legislative aide with a law degree making $65,000 a year back then, which was decent money in the 70s. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to go to law school, which was my plan. I said, I'm going to take a year off. I'm going to try this other thing and see how I like it because it seems stupid and silly and far-fetched and very kind of dreamlike. And I went to NYU audition, got in, they gave me a scholarship, you know, a need-based scholarship, but they paid for everything to go because it was, you know, it was expensive for my family. And I went there and as soon as I finished my first year, I got a job and I got another job and I just, I just kept working. I kept go, 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 went out to LA, got jobs in nighttime TV, and it just kept going. Even though I wasn't necessarily that sure of my feelings about acting and the life of an actor, but over the course of the first couple of years I did it, I fell in love with acting. When you started in your career, did you know the kind of work you wanted to do? Uh, you know, I, I wanted to fly airplanes as a kid. Right. And when I got old I enough to get my license at 16, I was 15, told my parents I want to uh, take flying lessons, get my license. They said, well, you better get a job. And the only job I could get in the small town of Mississippi was as a radio announcer. And I had really no interest in radio. It was just a job. But like you, I completely fell in love with it. And, uh, and that took me on this wonderful career. And by the time I was 20 years old, I was at the NBC station in Chicago. They let me actually program the station in addition to being on the air. And then they sent me to New York to WNBC when I was 23. So it was this great career, but it was, com as you say, completely driven by sort of the unexpected. And I completely fell in love with it, completely out of pattern. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I always wanted to be a doctor. Uh, and somehow that just fell by the wayside. And, uh, and this took over. The world has changed. So they ask you about, and you know, sort of soaps is sort of an interesting place to get started. If you'd say where Alec Baldwin began, I wouldn't say in the soaps. But what did you, what did that teach you about acting? Um, that's a good question. It teaches you two things that I remember vividly, which is about professionalism, that you come to work and it was like a Swiss watch. You know, they were, you were in there at seven o'clock in the morning and we rehearse and you go to makeup and they were like, we got to shoot this episode, you know, 22 pages of daytime drama today. We got to get this done today. And they would bring actors in there, some of them young people who would stay up all night and party. They had money in their pocket and they were gone within like a couple months. Like you, you had to show up and be reliable. We all have a job here to do. You're part of a uh, collaboration of people. All of them have a job and you have your job to do. And if you don't do it, if you screw up, you're going to affect everybody else. And it made me realize you got to show up. You got to know your lines. And then the second stage of that was the tendency to want to downgrade or to look askance at the material. Daytime writers had very stressful lives because coming up with something worthwhile every day was tough. And someone took me aside and they said, you can't let that affect you. You got to go the opposite way. You have to find a way to make it work because you're going to find when you leave this job that if you only show up for work, if you only go to work and make films and television shows and do theater, whatever you do, and you only do, you know, the greatest, you know, Steve Zalian script, and Spielberg is your, you know, all this fantasy of like of the creme de la creme, you know, Tony Kushner is writing and uh, Soderbergh is directing or whatever. 
uh, that doesn't happen very often. You know, you, you have a piece of material in front of you and it's your job to try to mine it for as much value as you can. And one of the proving grounds for me was a soap because the material sometimes was dreadful. I mean, it was really horrible. And you had to find a way to try to make it work. And sometimes you succeeded and sometimes you didn't, but you had to make that effort. And I thought that that was very, very helpful for me in terms of my work ethic. You know, early in your career, you were New York, you did a stint in LA, and I know you go back and forth. Let's go back to sort of the 80s and into today. How do those two cities differ in the creative process and what creativity means in LA and what it means in New York? And have you seen a change over time? Well, I'm sad to see that LA has been somewhat decimated, not because of the COVID, but because of just tax breaks and different uh, entities poaching, if you will, with their tax structure. But I remember, even though I wasn't a fan of living in LA, I'd love to go out there and shoot for a month or two and then come home because I wanted to live in New York. And the reason I wanted to live in New York was because New York is like a mountain range. And when you're at a dinner party or you're at an event in New York, it's people who are at the top of many different businesses. You're there with people in banking and real estate and art collecting and uh, literature and journalism and music. I mean, you name it, the theater, political figures, academics, you name it. I mean, show business has a place of equivalence in a range of mountains in New York. And when you go to Los Angeles, one mountain dwarfs all the other mountains. And when you go there, it's all about show business. It's like a city for the winners. And if you're a winner, if you go out there and you win an Emmy, and you, and you and you walk into the restaurant and you'd walk in there and they're like, oh, right this way, Mr. Baldwin. Yes, right over here, please. And can we what can we bring a bottle of champagne to your table to celebrate your your winnings? And blah, blah, blah. And you thought to yourself, I used to turn to my friends and go, let's enjoy this, fellas, because it ends tomorrow morning. It's over. <laughs> but it's funny how I don't want to live in LA, but I love shooting in LA and I was always disappointed when we wouldn't work out there because the best people are in LA. I always tell the same story. I say, when you go to the set of a movie somewhere and they'll say, the prop guy wants to come into your trailer and show you some wristwatches for your character. He wants you to choose a wristwatch for your character. And the guy comes into your trailer. It's, you know, you're in rehearsals or fittings for the movie. And the guy shows you like 50 watches. And you go, okay, I, what about that, uh, that little uh, Breitling there or whatever? And then you go to LA and they go, the prop guy would like you to look at some watches for the show. And he bring you in six cases with 400 watches. <laughs> you know, everybody in Hollywood, it's Hollywood. You know, and everybody there is at the top of the game. When you're on a set in a studio, uh, you know, when you're shooting, I think the last studio film I shot was a long time ago, but I never forget when I did Cat in the Hat with Mike Myers, which was a silly movie, but we were on the lot at Universal for five months. And they shot this thing forever. And I'll never forget the crew was the greatest crew. And I thought to myself, I'm never going to have it this good again because we're on the lot the whole time. We almost shot the whole movie on the lot. And there's just something about being on a soundstage in LA and those crews out there. There's just nothing like it in the world, nothing. And I'm sad that I don't really work out there as much as I used to. A lot of great old ghosts on those sound stages too. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Hey, so, you know, in the early 90s, I think it was, you made your first appearance as the guest host on Saturday Night Live. 
And all these years later, I think you hold the record for hosting the most Saturday Night Lives. You were talking about Lorne Michaels earlier on 30 Rock. What is it about Lorne Michaels? What's the magic? Lorne is smart in a way. He, he knows when to say yes, when to say no, how to say yes, how to say no, how to keep people engaged with him. And, and you're at, you, you find yourself in a place where you trust that this is a guy who, you know, he has your interest at heart. Now, granted, it's in his interest as well, but he's doing things that if he believes in you, will benefit you career-wise. Lorne is someone who, he's wise. He's very wise. And he keeps you focused on having the preferred attitude. Like I always tell the same story. The first year we went to the Emmys, we didn't win. Actually, I think we won ensemble cast. And then we lost to, you know, Modern Family or whatever. But but we we go to the Emmys the second year, we win everything. And we're, <laughs> and we're heading to the valet parking. And we went to the governor's ball for the TV Academy. This is for the Emmys, not the Oscars. And we go to the governor's ball. And as we go to the Valley, I go, God, I said, you know, last year when we lost, we were like in and out of here really quickly. You know, we were like, we went to the restaurant, had dinner and had a lot of fun. I said, this year we won. So we had to go to the governor's ball and take pictures with all these people. I mean, like we were taking pictures for like an hour and a half and we had to go table to table and get introduced to this guy and this guy and this person take pictures. I said, this is really like exhausting. I mean, what a pain in the ass. And we're standing at the Valley parking and Lauren takes his Emmy and he holds it up to me and he goes, but winning is better, right? Lauren <laughs> <laughs> is the one who helps you maintain perspective in a business that it's very easy to lose perspective. So, so Saturday Night Live, I love it. Saturday Night Live got started about the same time my career at NBC started. A guy named Herb Schlosser was the president yes. of NBC then and was really the champion of, of Lauren. He was my mentor there. And, uh, and I, I remember I was programming in Chicago and he came out and talked to me about Saturday Night Live, among other things. How on earth... Do they keep that creativity going for this many years? Well, I think that the biggest, and this is my opinion. I mean, I've never heard anybody say this, but the biggest, I think, challenge for them, the biggest frontier was the digital frontier to take what was a diminishing network broadcast audience and to get that content and to get some form of that content in clips and snippets and scenes and sketches. I mean, any way you can on YouTube, uh, Instagram, Twitter, you name it, to get it out there and to get the NBC content and the SNL content. I mean, you know, there were numbers for the show that were very, very, you know, good numbers for them uh, over the years. And now the show does numbers that are just ridiculous. They're live on both coasts now. So they do the 1130 feed at night live at 830 on the West Coast. And they're live across the country. They don't have a you're not watching a taped feed uh, in LA anymore and then they're all over the internet in the ensuing you know plus 7 schedule and their numbers are equal to network primetime numbers they're competing with primetime shows in terms of their numbers which is just if you told me that 15 years ago I would have bet everything I had against that and this is again Lorne adapting Lorne has always adapted in terms of the comedians where they come from who they are, the talent, music. You know, the joke was with Lauren, his daughter, Sophie, the joke was, 
who's the musical act? How do they determine who the musical act is on Saturday Night Live? And when his daughter was young, they said, who's ever in Sophie's iPod? <laughs> Lauren would take the information wherever he could get it. Who knows what's new, fresh happening? Who's a young actor? But in the end, and this is the thing I, among the things I love about Lauren the most, Lauren decides. Lauren garners all this information about potential hosts, music, sketches, material, who we make fun of, who we don't make fun of, how much we make fun of them. The, the, the actual molding of a show that goes from 1130 at night till one o'clock in the morning and gets progressively, I don't want to say adult, but a little bit more sophisticated, shall we say, as the night goes on. I've done sketches for Lauren where he'd sit there and say, that's a 1230 sketch. We put that toward the end of the show because it's a little more risque or it's a little more kind of crispy in that way. And Lauren's mastery of all the things that are in that world. I mean, every element of it. You'll say to Lauren, you watch Lauren give notes. I mean, 50% of the notes he gives during the notes between shows, we do the dress in the air. You do a full dress at eight o'clock. You do the air show at 1130. And in between an abundance of his notes are camera notes go tighter here. Why is that light? Put another light on him. Why is that backdrop, that color blue? He's producing a TV show where his eye is like he's making a movie. Lauren is just, he's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life, period. And he's certainly one of the three or four smartest people I've ever met in the business because of his, his, his adaptability. He's so adaptable. Well, he, he stands alone in the industry. I don't think there's anybody quite like Lauren. No, there isn't. You talked about scripts, and it's a, everybody's in that line to get a script. Some have the shorter lines. How do you pick what you're going to do? What's your process? When I was young, I worked all the time. When I was young, it was like chain smoking. I just lit one off the other. And then as I got older, I got more discerning in that way. And now as I'm at the age I'm at now, you know, it's the same muscle. You sit there and go, I want to go to work. But when you get older, you think, what is not duplicative of stuff I've already done? Because a lot of people want me to come in and play some Glenn Gary type of guy that straightens everybody out. And there's a kind of a ferocity to that character. And that gets to be kind of boring for me. But I think when I work now, it's about the people. So you'll say to me, here's a guy that wants to work with you with a project. And you think, in most cases, you know who it is. And they'll sit there and go, oh my God, I'm dying to work with him. Like I never work in the summer. Here's a good example. I never work in the summer. I take all of July and August off, except, <laughs> except if it's Marty Scorsese. And so Marty calls me and says, would you come and do The Departed? We're up in Massachusetts and we're going to shoot in August. And I'm like, you got it. <laughs> you know, there's people who, when they, when they, there's people who, when they call you, you just say, when's my fitting? Let's go. You know, you're just dying to be around them. You're just dying to be around them. Even if the part you're playing is not that significant, even if the film by no means pivots on anything you're doing, it's just such a joy to be around them. Bob De Niro asked me to do The Good Shepherd and just to be on the set with Bob. It was just mind blowing. It was just mind blowing, you know? I've had a few experiences like that. When we did Glenn Gary and I'm around these actors that are these actors I worship, it's who you work with. So let's let's jump the podcast. You're considered a podcast pioneer. Here's the thing with Alec Baldwin. What caught your attention with podcasting? How did you get there so early? What grabbed you? I had wanted to stay home. I didn't want to travel anymore. I wanted to work from New York and I had pitched the TV show 
talk show that was a disaster. I think we aired four or five shows, and of the five shows we aired, four of them were against Sunday night football, against the hottest games of the season. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the entire audience for my show could fit in one elevator at Saks Fifth Avenue. You know what I mean? It was like, forget it. So when I started thinking of the idea of radio and a podcast, I had different ideas, you know, like a Howard Stern type of bullpen with a cast of characters. And then the people I was working with finally said to me, listen, let's just try this at first, just you talking to people. And we did that for WNYC. It's not really an interview because it's a conversation. You know, Terry Gross keeps it all about her guest and that's her show. And I love that show. And I, I'm very admiring of her, but that's an interview show. And I thought to myself, that wasn't interesting to me. So if I bring on people, you know, that are actors and performers and talk to them about either something we have in common, you know, they're peers of mine, or there's somebody like Debbie Reynolds did my show. And my God, I mean, just, uh, I mean, I could have talked to her for six hours about her career. And uh, I'm either just so admiring of them and engaged by them. We've done pretty well. And now we're on iHeart, as you know. We yes. moved from public radio to iHeart, and I'm very glad for that. The, the podcasts to me are always divided into two groups, ones I like and ones I love. I mean, I, I, I like them all. I mean, there isn't one show we did that I regretted ever. But then we have people come on, and it's just Billy Joel's handlers, if you will, said, now, whatever you do, don't ask Billy to play. Don't ask him to play. Whatever you do, don't ask him to play. Now, I know Billy personally, and I called him on the phone, and I said, thanks so much for coming to do this with us. We're very excited. I can't thank you enough. I'm really looking forward to doing this with you. And he said, you're going to have a piano? <laughs> and I said, what? He said, you're going to have a piano. I said, we were told that it was forbidden for us to ask you to play. He goes, oh, that's ridiculous. Come on. Come on. And we go into a studio at NYC, and it's a soundstage where they record music, and there was a piano. And oh, my God, I think he's the one show we did where we didn't edit the show. It was one hour and five minutes or whatever it is, uncut. We just played it from start to finish because he's so seamless about his knowledge of music and what influenced him musically. It was just absolutely one of the most thrilling ones we ever did. Creatively, what does podcast offer you that you can't get? in any other form? Well, I think that like music, I mean, I always say that music has a significance in people's lives that uh, theater and film and TV don't have because you can consume it anywhere. You can be in the shower, you can be in the gym, you can be in the car and podcasts offer that. Podcast is the, I mean, this is why I love radio. Audio is something that you can indulge just about any time. The same as music almost is that idea of its, um, availability. You can, you can consume it anywhere. And I love that. And I listen to a lot of, I'm addicted to this American life and for years, and I listen to a bunch of podcasts. So as we wind down, you've had a front row seat in the entertainment business for decades. So I want you to think just a second and give a shout out to two people. We always end the show this way because it's called Math and Magic. Who's the, let's talk about the mathematician. Who's the best business person you've met or that you can think of in entertainment or media, and who's the most creative, the magic? Well, I would say that's, I love this question, by the way. Well, one person who I don't know well, I've met him many times and I don't know well, but someone who 
and I'm sure you can appreciate this in your career, the person who I've always heard consistently is the guy with the Midas touch. Everything he touches turns to profit or is successful is Gethin. Uh, Geffen is someone who I always hear these really, really like he just has some mystical ability in terms of his investment strategies and his businesses. And he's been this preposterously successful guy for a very, very long time. Then I guess in terms of uh, the magic and the creativity, the person who always amazes me the most in terms of the range of his work. Now, of course, he has every advantage that other people don't have because he's so successful commercially. And he's so on top of his game, he knows what he's doing, is Spielberg. I would say Spielberg is the person who, and that's a tough question to answer because I've got many people, you know, Fincher and uh, Soderbergh and Marty and uh, De Palma and Coppola. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's an endless there's so many hundreds of directors that are, you know, and, and foreign directors and so forth, European directors. It's tough to pick one. So I'm really only picking one among many because I admire many of them to the same level. But there's something about Spielberg to me that is just uncanny. I mean, that just the range. I mean, things from AI and Jurassic Park to Jaws and Munich. E.T. And Lincoln and Amistad. And I mean, just the range of his... I mean, even the things that Spielberg has done that have not been as successful creatively and commercially as his more towering achievements like Jurassic and Jaws and so forth, even the ones that didn't do as well overall, they're still better than most other people's movies. I mean, Spielberg to me just is on an island of his own. He's on a planet of his own in terms of talent. Alec, congratulations on everything. Thanks for taking the time today. And by the way, Thanks for joining the iHeart family with uh, with your podcast. Always remember, Bob, and I, my friends and I who were in this club, we all uh, salute each other and we all laugh about this. I still have an AOL mail account, Bob. Did you Me know too. That? I'm on AOL. Me too. Here are a few things I learned from my conversation with Alec. One, understand what your job is and how to add value to it. When Alec got his big break in soaps, he learned you have to know your lines, but you also have to work to sell them. Two, embrace the opportunities that surprise you. In Alec's experience, when you think you're choosing between A, B, and C, the answer will probably be D. Three, whether it's a co-star or a co-worker, never underestimate how your collaborators can help you grow. These days, Alec chooses his projects based on who he'll be working with. The next time you're searching for a new partner or collaborator, ask yourself, will this person challenge me? Will they help me grow? Four, and in these difficult times, take some comfort in the simple things. During COVID, Alec has found balance by spending time outdoors, going on hikes, and playing in the snow with his family. Thanks for listening. I'm Bob Pittman. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time.
More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.